Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. Nope. That was a test. It's actually Matthew 10. I have no idea where Matthew 12 uh, came from. Guess I'm just excited to keep going. So really, we're actually in 10. That's where you want to be. And verse 26. I think I have that right now. Screen says 1016. You know what? It's like one of those days. (laughs) Do you ever have one of those days, Donald? Yeah, once in a while. I'm having one of those days. All right, here's where I am. I'm in Matthew 10 and verse 26. So that's where you need to be. Okay, Matthew 10 and verse 26. Pay no attention to that little man behind the curtain. (laughs) I want to talk to you this morning about fear. I want to talk to you about fear. Fear is a very real thing. And it is also quite debilitating, or can be. It's a very, very powerful emotion. It can shape us. It can, it can determine decisions that we make when we are driven by fear. Even if the fear is irrational, it is nonetheless powerful. Here are some examples for you of some common fears. Snakes. People are afraid of snakes. Some are afraid of spiders. Other people are afraid of heights. Some are afraid of standing in front of 400 people. Some are afraid of crossing bridges or driving through tunnels. Of all kinds of fears that people have. And, and if you don't particularly have a fear of one, you might look on those who do and think that's just silly. That's irrational. Why are you afraid of a spider? Just step on it. But for the person who's afraid, it is, it is a very powerful thing. There are also some sort of exotic fears. I went looking uh, this week around uh, on the internet, which is always sort of a dangerous thing to do, but I went looking for some exotic fears, and I found a few. And, and maybe, maybe this resonates with you. Maybe you're not afraid of snakes. Maybe you're not afraid of spiders. Maybe standing in front of people and speaking doesn't bother you a bit. Maybe instead you have uh, what's called spectrophobia. Spectrophobia. That is the fear of mirrors or one's own reflection. You're afraid of your own reflection, you have spectrophobia. Or if you don't have that, maybe you have chorophobia. That's the fear of dancing. <laughs> A lot of fundamentalists have chorophobia. <laughs> yep. Fear of dancing. Or one that is relatively uh, recent but apparently is growing, and that's called uh, nomophobia, a nomophobia. Nomophobia. 
And uh, it comes from the abbreviation, no mobile phone phobia. (laughs) And uh, it's a fear of being out of mobile phone uh, contact. Sort of out of cell range kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not kidding you on that one. There's a, apparently a growing number of people who, if, they're, if they don't have cell phone contact, they get really agitated and afraid. Now, we might say, well, that's pretty silly, right? It's kind of irrational. I mean, like, what, what did people do 15 years ago? Good question. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about a fear, actually, that is just as illogical as nomophobia. It's the fear of persecution. The fear of persecution. Because according to the Word of God, it is, it is just as illogical a fear as being afraid of being out of cell phone contact. The issues, of course, are much more serious. But the reality is that it is just as illogical. The passage we have before us this morning is a continuation of Jesus' instruction to the twelve prior to sending them out into their Galilean preaching ministry. And he is is preparing them to go out and to preach. And as we saw in the last couple of weeks, the, the preparations now are dealing with the topic of persecution. Persecution. And, and specifically, what's before us this morning, in, beginning in verse uh, 26, is the topic of, of fear of that persecution. You can see that, in, in, for example, in verse 26, you see the word, or the, or the expression, do not fear. Do not fear. Verse 28, you see it again, do not fear. Verse 31, do not fear. It's repeated three times. So this this text, as he's talking about persecution, he's now talking about the issue of the fear of persecution. He He has previously talked about what they can expect, and now he is saying this is how you need to you need to respond to it. You cannot respond in fear. You cannot respond in fear. He has, he has prophesied to them previously, beginning we saw in, before in verse 16 through 25, that, that there's a future persecution coming to them. There is a future persecution coming. And we, and we noted before that, that to these twelve, that, that persecution that he speaks of here would, would be fulfilled for them in the time of the book of Acts, in the first 30 years so with the birth of the church. We also noted that this very, very important uh, expression here at the end of verse 23, the Son of Man, kind of sets the context of all of this. And that by bringing that into this passage here, that he, he is also looking forward in time to the great event of the return of the Son of Man as described in Daniel chapter 7. The return of Messiah to, to establish His kingdom. And we, and we remember from before that preceding the return of Messiah is a time of, of great 
persecution and tribulation and trial and indeed the wrath of God. So flowing in this passage is these instructions for these twelve leaping ahead to some future unnamed Jewish evangelists in the times of the tribulation prior to the coming of the Son of Man. And sort of overarching it all is this notion of of the future days. The future days. And there's a lot we can apply from this passage even though it's not written directly to us, we, we neither lived in the book of Acts, nor are, are we Jewish evangelists in the time of the tribulation. But there is much we can learn and apply out of this text, and, and that's kind of what we want to do again this morning. As I say, the, the dominant idea that, that sort of overarches all of this is, is our future hope and the return of the Son of Man. That's the, that's the anchor point in all of this, is we are looking forward to what Paul says in Titus is our blessed hope, the return of the king. Now, things are bad, and things likely will get worse, and evil men uh, are in positions of authority. That is very, very true. The nations are raging against the king, Psalm 2. And so it would be, it would be easy to, to sort of be discouraged in all of this and, and to want to withdraw from all of this and, and cower in fear. And, and this prophecy says that the, this terrible persecution is coming. In. And he even says, you know, if they're persecuting you in one city, run away to another city. And that is a very valid strategy to sort of dealing with this. But there would be the temptation to, to sort of like hide from it all. Just let's, let's just hide. And he says we cannot give in to debilitating fears. Christ is coming. When he returns, he will crush those who are in rebellion against him. Evil will be put down. A kingdom of righteousness will be established. That is our blessed hope. And we are called to live in light of that, even in a world that despises us and would even persecute us. That's the big idea. We're called to live today by faith as if the future had already come. It's that clear, it's that firm, it's that assured. We are waiting on that age to come. So as Jesus speaks to his 12 here, I think he's got something to say to you and I about this subject of persecution and and in particular about fear with regard to it. And I don't don't know about you, but it's pretty easy to to sort of look around and, and allow some fear to grow in your heart. These are dangerous days. They're likely to get worse. So what Jesus gives us here, beginning in verse 26 and running through verse 33, are four reasons. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning. Four four reasons not to fear persecution. Four reasons not to fear persecution. Why? So, So that we can be more bold for Christ. So that we can be more bold. Because one of the things that happens is when fear overtakes us is we tend to clam up. We tend to hide our light under a basket, as it were, to conceal and shield 
our, our Christianity because we don't want to bring this upon us. And Jesus says that's just not an acceptable approach. Let's read the text. I'm going to actually pick it up in verse 24 and get a running start at it. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Four reasons not to fear the persecution. The first reason in verses 26 and 27 is simply this. Truth will triumph. Truth will triumph. Notice that Jesus begins here in verse 26. He says, therefore, do not fear them. Therefore, pushes us back into the context. He's drawing a conclusion from something that has gone before. And he is speaking about a them. A them. Well, who are the thems? Well, if you work your way back into the, through the context, you see in verse 23 that the them there are those who are doing the persecuting. And if you trace it far enough back into verse 17, it is the men that he warns them to be aware of. It is the persecutors. Do not be afraid of the persecutors. They are going to malign you. They are going to treat you shabbily. They are going to draw you into before the courts. You're going to be flogged in the synagogues. You're going to be brought before the the Gentile authorities. It's going to get so bad that even family relationships are going to be fractured. And those who should love and protect and care for you will become your accusers and your persecutors. It's going to be very bad. But do not fear. Do not fear them. Why? Why? Because ultimately, truth will triumph. Ultimately, that which is concealed will come to to the light, will be revealed. That which is hidden will be known. I mean, presently, those who are in, in a position of power and authority seem like they have the upper hand, seem like they have the final word. And Jesus says it's not going to always be that way. When the the Son of Man comes, verse 23, everything will change. 
everything will change. Verse 26, concealed and hidden. That is a that is a Hebrew synonymous parallelism. What does that mean? It just means that it's that it's two ideas expressing or two statements expressing the same idea. There's not something concealed and something else hidden. It's talking about the same thing. It's concealed, it's hidden. It's not obvious now. Well, what is not obvious now? What is not obvious now is the is the triumphant rule of the Son of Man. In fact, just the opposite. Contextually and, and at, in their day and, and by application even into our day, what is thought about Jesus is anything but the ruling Son of Man. In fact, in, in verse 25, right above it, it says that, that he is called Beelzebul. That he is, it is in league with the demons. They, they're maligning him in the, in the most vile way. Jesus is not the, the glorious Son of Man. In league with the demons, they say. And by extension, if, if, if they say that of the Master, if they say that of the Teacher, then what do you expect they're going to say of you? So, so expect not to be welcomed at the party. Instead, expect to be ostracized, expect to be maligned, expect to be slandered. Why? Because the truth has not yet been made manifest, but it will. Even Isaiah that was read for us earlier, he talks about this very thing. To the Jewish people, Jesus died as a disgraced evildoer. A disgraced evildoer. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, uh, acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and, and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. But we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. It's a little more free rendering of the Hebrew, but I think it gets at it. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, with the return of the coming of the Son of Man, it is there that the nation, it says, looks on him whom they have pierced, and they mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. It is only then that they will recognize that who he really is. For now, he's a sinner, despised and and set aside by God and, and punished for his own blasphemy. You want to follow him? Is that where you want to you line up? Is that, is that where you want to put your bets? Beyond that, we're told in, in John 16, Jesus himself speaking here, that the, the persecutors are ignorant of their opposition to God. They think they're doing a good thing. Jesus says here in John 16, beginning in verse 1, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Jesus is telling the disciples this at the Last Supper, right before his arrest, crucifixion. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. 
But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Let that sink in for a minute. They're going to kill you, and they're going to think that God is pleased with this. Listen, when, when Saul was persecuting the church, it's not because he was a bloodthirsty brigand. He was persecuting the church, those early believers, because he and his, his ignorant zeal believed that he was stamping out a false religion, a blasphemous group of people who were a threat to Judaism. That's the same way today. When Christians are are persecuted today, they, they are persecuted by those in authority because they believe they are doing the right thing. They are, they are eliminating some sort of evil, blasphemous threat to what they understand to be truth. But they're in ignorant opposition to God. They don't know that they're, they're killing God's own people. It's hidden. It's concealed. Beloved, truth is going to triumph. Truth will triumph, and and it will triumph when Christ returns. And so what Jesus is saying to them is is basically here, listen, you want to be on the right side of history. You want to be on the right side of history. I am going to be vindicated, and when I am vindicated, all truth will be vindicated. So by faith, get on the right side of history now. Verse 27, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Speak what you know to be true. Speak forth what you know to be true. Be bold. Be bold. Proclaim from the housetops. In Palestine, there were flat-roofed houses. You'd stand up there. I mean, they, that was another, like, a patio. It was a living area. And you could stand up there, and you could yell out, and it would be heard. So he's saying, listen, don't hide around. Don't, don't uh, sort of skulk around in the shadows. Get right out there and, and let her go. Proclaim it. Don't hold anything back. Let her rip. Now again, in the Last Supper, or at the Last Supper, according to John 14, John 16, Jesus says there that, you know, you, you, you haven't remembered everything I've taught you and certain things I've done you, you don't understand, but the, the Spirit is coming, right? And He's going to bring to your remembrance everything I ever said, and He's going to help you to understand everything I've ever done, and, and then you're going to be able to proclaim it with absolute certainty and truth. And uh, you're going to write it down, and you and I are going to have it. And we need to speak it. We need to speak it. Beloved, it's, it's this. It's, it's really this simple. Bottom line, Jesus wins. Amen? I mean, you read the book of Revelation, isn't that it? Bottom line, Jesus what? Wins. And, when, and because we know Jesus wins, therefore, by faith, today, we are to speak. We're to speak. We don't need to wait until he wins. 
I'm a Red Sox fan. That's just, that's the way it is. I am a Red Sox fan. And I've been a Red Sox fan for a very long time. But I'm a special kind of Red Sox fan. And you have to come from Boston to understand what kind of Red Sox fan this is, which is a true Red Sox fan, which means that when they win, we, we are big-time fans, and when they lose, we're all over their case. Some call it fair-weather fans. That's not the way we want to be with Jesus. We don't, we don't, want, to, we don't want to say that, you know, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm a, I'm a silent follower, I'm a quiet follower. I'm a secret follower. But, you know, when, when he returns and he establishes his kingdom and all truth is vindicated, then I'm going to be out there with the pom-pom saying, yeah, I'm part of the winning team. He says, no, that's too late then. You need to buy faith. Not faith. One of those areas. It's there and here and here. By faith, you need to be shaking the pom-poms now. You are part of the winning team. Truth will triumph. So I have to speak. Don't fear. Don't allow fear to, to intimidate us into silence. Second, pain is temporal. Pain is temporal. Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is the second reason we're not to fear. And and basically what it says is that the persecutors, because they are only human, they can only reach so far. Now they can do some really, really nasty things. There, there is seemingly no limit to their evil. The amount of pain and, and hardship that can be inflicted upon the follower of Jesus Christ is immense, to be sure. Up to and including the taking of your life. But Jesus' point is that that's as far as it can go. That's as far as they can reach. That's the worst thing they can do to you is to kill you. Worst thing they can do. They can't touch your soul. Cannot touch your soul. Their reach is limited. Their arm is short. God, on the other hand, God, on the other hand, who is your loving Father, But he is also, the scripture tells us, a fearsome judge. A fearsome judge. And and his power and his authority lies not just over the physical realm, but over the spiritual realm as well. He can reach all the way to the end. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers who are suffering persecution. And the, and the point of the entire book is to show the superiority of Christ to the old covenant system and to exhort them to stay with Jesus and not turn back in the face of persecution. 
And one of the arguments that the author marshals there in, in chapter 10 and verse 31 is he says, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrible thing. You do not want to face God as your judge. Jesus speaks here about destroying body and soul in, in hell. Verse 28 probably important to say this, that, he, that he's not saying that a person passes out of existence. He is not saying that there is an annihilation of that person. What he is referring to here is the, is the eternal torment of hell. The eternal torment of hell. Those consigned there to hell are unwilling and unable to repent, and thus they remain permanently enemies of God and under His condemnation. It's a fearsome doctrine. It is a sobering doctrine. It is a terrifying doctrine. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, These, that is those who have rejected the Son of Man, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. Never-ending punishment. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. A very, very sobering thought. Very sobering. Here's the the idea. We may suffer now. We may suffer now for Christ. But to reject Him is to suffer now and eternally. And that's a fool's bargain. What will a man give in exchange for his own soul, right? How much is it worth? The Apostle Paul comes at this same reality from a little bit different angle. He, he's reflecting in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 upon the, his trials and afflictions. And if you know anything about the life of the Apostle Paul, he suffered immensely for Jesus Christ. And he, re, he reflects on that and he really says something quite interesting in chapter 4 and in verse 17. He calls it a momentary light affliction. A momentary light affliction. Because he does math a little differently than, than we do. He does divine math. It's a momentary light affliction compared to what? The eternal weight of glory. The eternal weight of glory. So, so he's, he's counting the future in. And when you count the future in, what we suffer here in the flesh, Paul says, is momentary and it is light. Life is short. Pain can be intense, but it won't last forever. It won't last forever. The pain is temporal. Pain is temporal. We see a great illustration of this. Early 2nd century father named Polycarp. Some of you know the story of Polycarp's martyrdom. 
Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was bishop of the city of Smyrna in Turkey. In his old age, at age 86, the apostle, or excuse me, the, the bishop Polycarp was arrested by the Roman authorities. And uh, the account of the church there has been recorded for us of his conversation, his dialogue with his accusers up to and including his ultimate death. In the exchange with the, with the arresting authorities, the Roman proconsul, it went like this. The proconsul says, I have wild beasts. I will deliver you to them unless you repent. Polycarp said, call for them. For repentance from better to worse is not allowed us. But it is good to change from evil to righteousness. Bring on your lions. Proconsul said to him again, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the beasts unless you repent. Polycarp said, you threaten with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know that the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come is an everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come, do what you will, he says. And they did. They bound him to the stake. They placed the kindling around him and they lit it on fire. Polycarp understood. Pain is temporal. Pain is temporal. Or not to fear. Third. Third reason Jesus gives us here is that we are valuable. We are valuable. Verses 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, he says. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. It's the third reason that Jesus gives here. And it's an interesting reason because he, he turns from sort of the, the really heavy, kind of threatening thought about the awesome anger and wrath of God. And he, and he turns it now, and he, and he talks about God not as the awesome judge, but, but God as the loving, sovereign, providential father who, who cares for his children at the most intimate levels. Most intimate levels. Here it is, short and short and sweet. We should persevere. We should not fear persecution. Why? Because we are valuable to God. We are valuable to God, and He will not let anything happen to us outside of His loving and caring will for us. It's simply that. Jesus argues here, He uses the illustration of the sparrows, He argues from the lesser to the greater. Listen, if God cares for sparrows, He'll care for you. That's how the argument is built. Sparrows, what's the point about sparrows? Sparrows were a very... Um, plentiful bird. They're all over the place. And they were common food for the poor. 
you could in the marketplace at this time regularly buy two sparrows for the the smallest of of copper coins. Literally one-sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius was was the wages for a common laborer for one day. So for, a, for a, less, a fraction of a day's wages, you could buy these sparrows and feed you and your family. Translated here as the cent, trying to get at that idea of that very small copper coin. Yet Jesus says here, in, in spite of the fact that these, these things are plentiful and they're insignificant, God is intimately involved in their lives. He's watching over them. Do you see it? Yet not one of them, end of verse 29, will fall to the ground apart from your father. What it means is is they will not die apart from God's care and attention for them. God is not so busy that a a dumb little bird is just going to die and and he's not going to be aware of it. And it's not just that, oh, God's omniscient, he's aware of everything. When it says, apart from your father, what he is talking about here is not not merely God's knowledge in in a sense of a remote omniscience. He's talking about God's tender care. God's tender care. Their life does not end one split second sooner than their creator chooses for it to happen. They're within his sovereign and providential control. Beyond that, beyond that, verse 30, Jesus moves to something that's arguably even more insignificant, right? The hair on your head. The hair on your head. The very hairs of your head are all numbered, he says. The hairs of your head are all numbered. Now listen, this is is not that God counts them. Is that God has a record of them. God has a record of the hairs of your head. Hair. I, I mean, like you comb it and what happens? Some of it comes out. You wash your head, you, you, you wash it, some of it ends up in the drain. It's falling out all the time. All the time. And it's insignificant. And yet God has a record of it all. He knows you that well. He cares for you that much that he is, that he is keeping track of the, of the most insignificant part of your anatomy that you can, you can really think about. It's like the, the, the skin that you're sloughing off all the time. God has a record. He knows you at that level. He cares about you in that kind of detail. Listen, when you put this together, right? A sparrow doesn't die without God's intimate attention and involvement. God knows and cares about you down to the level of the, of the stuff that just is falling off you all the time. From the lesser to the greater, what can we say about God's care? You are valuable to him. You are valuable to him. You are his child. Your well-being is his concern. 
Now listen, it's, it's easy in the, in the grip of suffering to, to sort of forget all of this. It's very easy in the grip of suffering to, to begin to wonder, where is God? Has He forgotten me? Have I been abandoned? Where are you, God? And we don't have to look very far in the Old Testament to see illustrations of even the saints of old who, who cry out to God in their, in their difficult times. David, Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Habakkuk. He says, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. The martyrs, according to Revelation 6 and verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice saying, Oh, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Listen, it's... It's a great temptation to, to think in the, in the face of hardship that God has abandoned you. God has forgotten you. And Jesus is saying, no, not at all. You are very valuable to him. Very valuable to him. Notice the end of verse 29, by the way, where it says that, that not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. Do you see that? Your father. That is a, that is a term of, of, of intimacy and care. Intimacy and care. He's not the father of the sparrows, but he's the father of you. If you have come to him by faith, believing on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to free you from your sin, he's your father. And because of this, We must trust Him. We must not fear. Verse 31, Jesus sort of drives the nail. He clinches the argument. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I guess we could say then a head of hair too. God will care for you. He will provide for you. Don't worry. Don't fear. We're not to fear. Why? Truth will triumph. We're not to fear. Why? Pain is temporal. We're not to fear. Why? We're valuable to God. We're not to fear. Why? Number four, loyalty is rewarded. Loyalty is rewarded. Therefore, therefore, this, on account of the fact that you are valuable and precious to God and who is intimately involved and aware of every aspect of your life in light of all of that. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We're not to fear, number four, because we're valuable to God. That's designed to motivate us, but, but he goes beyond that. And he says, listen, you're not to fear because of Jesus' loyalty. We can, we can kind of make a syllogism out of it. If you will be loyal to him, he will be loyal to you. 
If you are loyal to him, he will be loyal to you. Now, I don't know about you, but the Son of Man, Lord of glory, King of kings, the one who, upon whom all of history turns, the one who is the rightful heir of the creation, the great and sovereign one, will stand in for you. He will speak for you. He will appear for you as your advocate, as your loyal friend. I will confess him, he says, before my father. I will say, this one is mine. This one is mine. And because he is mine, Nobody can touch him. Nobody. Notice he says, everyone. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men. He's he's sort of widening this thing out. So that sweeps us all in. This is a necessary criterion of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, beloved. No silent disciples. No mute disciples. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's us. I am not ashamed, Paul says. I am not ashamed. Later in chapter 10 and verse 9 of the same book, he says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says what? Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. You should be saved. Must open the mouth and speak. We must open the mouth and speak. And it's the hardest thing, isn't it? Don't you find it hard? I find it hard. I find it hard. I walk away from situations after the fact and I think to myself, ah, should have said something. (sighs) D.A. Carson, good Bible commentator, writes in his commentary on Matthew these words. I think they're helpful words. He's talking about this requirement that Jesus has, right? Confess me before men. Carson writes, this this will vary in boldness. I really like this. This is very good pastoral wisdom. This will vary in boldness. This will vary in fluency, wisdom, sensitivity, and frequency from believer to believer. And he cites Calvin who says similar words. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It is a recognition of our weakness. God knows that we are but dust. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we're not as bold as, as we would want to be. He knows about the many times that when the opportunity has come, you have wilted. 
He knows about the times when you, when you finally did open your mouth and what came out was, ay ay ay. It's a mess. He knows about the time that in your zeal, you like opened your mouth and instead of being helpful, it was like throwing gasoline on the fire, right? It was about all of those things and more. The point of it all is, is that we do speak. We do speak. We're not who we want to be. We're not there yet. We're not who we're going to be someday. But praise Jesus, we're not who we once were. We're not who we once were. So we do speak. We do speak. Jesus says, you deny me. Before men, I'll deny you before my Father. That's a heavy, heavy thing to think about. Heavy stuff. Listen, God has raised Jesus from the dead. Amen? He's now seated at his right hand. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to the resurrected one. Jesus is now the reigning king. And because of that reality, all of human destiny turns on one's relationship to this man. It all comes down to that. He is your savior or he is your judge. He will stand as your advocate or he will stand as your accuser. He will reward your loyalty to him by his loyalty to you or he will denounce you and banish you to everlasting fire. There is no middle ground. There's no room to sit on the fence. He who is not with me is against me. You are of the kingdom of light or you are still captive of the kingdom of darkness. You're in or you're out. Social pressure makes us close our mouths. Don't want to appear foolish. Don't want to appear stupid. Don't want to be maligned. Worse, don't want to be hurt. It can and often does have a very chilling effect on what we say. And Jesus says, listen, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. When we are fearful, it is because we have lost touch with the gospel. It is because we doubt its power or we have forgotten it. What is the worst that can be done to us in this life? They can kill us, right? The body they may kill, Luther says. God's truth abideth still. The Apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be where? 
present with the Lord. We need to apprehend that truth by faith. We need to apprehend that truth by faith. Do not fear. Truth will triumph. Do not fear. Pain is temporal. Do not fear. You're valuable to God. Do not fear. Christ will reward your loyalty. May God grant us grace to believe His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, how we sense our need for Your Spirit enablement to live in accordance with who we really are. Every one of us, in multiple occasions, we have found our mouth to grow dry, tongue sticks to the roof, we stammer if we even open our mouths at all. And then after the circumstance passed, we feel washed over with guilt and shame. We know where to speak, yet our faith is so weak. Our Father, may you use your word, may your spirit use his word today to help us believe. Not just to affirm it, as true, yes, I believe it. It's the Word of God. It's true. But to personalize it. Help us to stand firm. God, grant us opportunity, even this week, to stand firm. And give us grace upon grace upon grace to follow through. Thank you that Jesus died in our place. That His atoning sacrifice covers even the sin of our failure to speak, of our weak faith. Flame our hearts with the reality of the gospel again today. We ask for Jesus' sake and in His name. Amen. May God go with you this week, beloved.